My name is Claudia Green, and this is She Did That, the podcast shining a spotlight on remarkable women who are breaking barriers and proving that greatness knows no gender. From female founders who have raised millions of pounds, the investors changing the landscape as we know it, to survivors of tragedy who have achieved the amazing and many more. We will share the stories of these incredible women who will inspire and empower you. In order to support us and these women, please subscribe on your viewing or listening channel of choice so we can continue our mission of sharing the stories that should and need to be heard. If you've ever wondered what it takes to be a truly successful leader, then here is your chance to learn. We have Emily Coolen. She is coach to many, many high-performing male and female CEOs and leaders in some of the largest corporates in the world. And she is here to share her tips on how you can be the best you. Emily, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So I'd love to find out a bit more about what you do because we often hear the term coach or I'm a business coach, but often people don't really understand what that means or what that entails. So can you just summarize what it is you do exactly? You'll find a lot of coaches will have different definitions, um, and I may not be the same or traditional comparatively, but how I define the work I do in coaching, and I do have a few different, you know, uh, things I do for work, but for as a coach, uh, I create opportunities and space for leaders, typically only leaders, but leaders to discover what they need to be discovering. So mm -hmm. it's asking the right questions. It's making sure they feel safe and neutral. A lot of leaders are lonely. They don't have anybody to speak to. And I can be that, you know, that ear on the shoulder, the angel and devil. Um, I challenge them. I make sure that um, they've just got the opportunity to think things through and mm -hmm. find out for themselves what they need. I guide them with questions to get there. So what kind of people do you typically work with? You say leaders, but is that sort of CEOs and what size businesses? Uh, I, I'm a little bit... Uh, split in my time often. So, and I do that on purpose. So I work with leaders who are brand new leaders. I work with uh, CEOs of large multinationals. I work with founding teams or founding leaders uh, and everything in between. Anybody who's either jumping into the leadership space or has been there forever and needs a reset or recalibration. Um, I love splitting my time between large corporate and startups and scale-ups because I can learn between the two and I can bring those experiences to the leaders I'm working with between the two. Uh, there's often a basically a breakdown between, oh, we're big corporate or oh, we're startup. Um, there's so many similarities in what leadership is mm. and what I can do. I also consider the work I do to be basically whole self. So these leaders, they don't just want to talk about work. They, I'm not a life coach, but they have a lot of other elements of their life and I bring it all together. So I make sure that they're full humans mm. in the work that we do, not just leaders. Do you see a big difference between the CEOs of large corporates and say the founder of a startup? Because I think the perception is, is obviously it's very chaotic as a startup founder. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's a bit more in place uh, organizationally when, when you're the CEO of a really large corporate. Are there similarities there? Would we be surprised, basically? I think there's a lot more similarities than people think. Mm. The fears, the challenges, the human interactions, they're not dissimilar. Obviously, the support, as you mentioned, is different. Um, I have leaders who, you know, they have two executive assistants and they, you know, can fly private, things like that. And then I have startup founder leaders who are, you know, making, you know, every, doing every task at their job or mm -hmm. at their company. And so I think there's a lot of some, you know, differences, but the core human parts of it are very, very similar. The mm -hmm. feelings, the insecurities, the uh, unease, the um, interactions they have to do, how do they, you know, battle with their own um, resilience and their own priorities while still leading their company. So those are very, very similar. That's quite comforting that yeah. the people with the private jets and the massive companies with thousands of employees still have those feelings. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I think that they can learn a lot from startup founding, uh, founding leaders because some of the, sometimes you forget the other bits mm. when you are very, you get to be really focused in one area. Um, uh, 
a large corporate leader may be much more strategic because that's the time they get to do. A mm. uh, startup founder still has to be strategic, but they're going to be doing that on the side of their desk or at 10, uh, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Mm. So there's a balance there. And I think they can learn a lot from each other. And do people usually employ your services when probably quite a lot after they needed them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, my ideal person is sort of right when before they even know that there's any issues, mm -hmm. they do it as a very preventative, um, just like you go for a checkup with a doctor. Mm. To me, that's when you should be getting a coach. You know, hey, I'm really healthy now. Let's get ourselves on, keep ourselves that way. Often though, I'm brought on when there's challenges, sometimes positive challenges. So transitions in career or transitions to role. Mm. Um, and I'm brought on to support with that. Mm. But other times it's when other tra challenges or, you know, negative transitions are happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, if the leader can identify themselves as needing support, that is much more positive than somebody around them identifying that the leader needs support, whether it's their boss or their investor or somebody in their circle. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is usually not too late, but you, I, I guess people don't realize that they need these things until something really bad happens yeah. or there's a massive crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is a shame that you kind of have to get there after the event and fix the problem. And I think, I mean, almost every problem is going to be fixable, mm. but there's a lot more, let's say, stress and anxiety and negativity and emotions mm. going to be that you have to deal with if you have to deal with it sort of after the fact. So. And how do you typically work with high-performing CEOs? What's kind of your, do you have a sp specific strategy or do you kind of tailor it depending on the kind of person? Uh, honestly, I tailor it to the individual um, and I'm not going to be the coach for everybody. So I do discovery calls with every person that I'm going to work with and make sure I'm the right personality for them. Mm. Um, I have a style. I can be very challenging. I can be confronting. Not everybody's going to be okay with that. Some people want them to nod and smile and tell them they're wonderful. That's not my style. <laughs> so um, I will do that, but I will balance that with some challenge. Mm. So I do discovery calls. And then from there, we decide on what is the best course of action for that person. Um, um, if it is a scale-up leader or startup leader who really their time is so, you know, dragged on with everything else, we may not be meeting as often um, mm -hmm. as maybe a corporate leader who has, you know, a bit more flexibility at times or they don't have flexibility because they're traveling. We're going to change how we operate. A lot of my sessions, even well before pandemic, have been virtual. Mm -hmm. um, because that just works for a lot of people. I try and do some face-to-face -face if possible, just because there's a deeper connection we can get. Mm. But um, sometimes it's laser coaching, which is really short sprints. Mm. Um, I may do a half an hour quick session as opposed to a one hour session. Um, I also do team coaching. So when the team is going through transition, we will bring the team together mm -hmm. and do that. And then other times the leader will, I'll coach with the leader and then I'll go and do facilitation with the team or with some of their stakeholders to say, right, this is a problem that's been identified by the leader. They're working on this. Now let's facilitate the growth of the whole team mm. in a different way. Mm -hmm. So those are typically my entry points. Okay. That makes sense. And here's an interesting one. Have you <laughs> noticed any key differences between high-performing male CEOs and high-performing female CEOs? Uh, absolutely. In the corporate world, um, the high-performing female CEO is fighting up almost every, or it doesn't even have to be the CEO, anybody in that CX or C-suite, um, they're fighting up. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, a lot of the male CEOs or C-suite are fighting down um, because they don't have to fight up. They typically, whether that's just, you know, their own, the, the environment or culture of the organization or their own confidence, there's just a different um, attitude or approach to things. So I see a lot of female leaders at very, very high performing who are continually fighting for their job. They have to prove themselves. Do they actually? Probably not. They have been hired to do their job, but there's usually a bit more of a mindset where they have to prove themselves every single day versus uh, a lot of the male leaders I work with have a bit more confidence. You know, once they're in that seat, they're in that seat. They don't have to, I mean, they're still going to perform, but mm. they're not proving themselves every mm. day. So that's one of the key differences I see. Um, that is changing. I'm very, very happy to see that some of that mentality is changing. It's still there in some of the more traditional industries, mm. but it is changing. 
That's a shame. That's <laughs> it's a shame. It's, it's it a shame that women still have this um, need to yeah. prove that they are the right one for the job. And and now I'm thinking about it, how that translates to other people. Yeah. In terms of the organisations. Yeah. Can be very tricky. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other big differences I see regularly is the different biases that will uh, that are come across, but they're going to be different based on a female and a male. In particular, one of the age one is or one of them is age. Um, in a lot of really big multinationals, once a woman hits a certain age, and that could be 50, 55, they're consideration for future senior roles is going to be diminished. doesn't mean they're not going to get them, but there's a bit of a, well, after you reach a certain age, you may be, you know, kind of put out to pasture in a way. It's, it's sometimes even verbally said that. Typically, it's just a, a bit of a feeling or a culture. Um, men don't have that. You know, you'll see men C-suite still being promoted or putting on boards or whatever well into their 70s or so. And it's not, um, it's just not consistent. So again, I'm seeing it change to some degree. We have some powerful female CEOs out in the world who are making sure that that's different. Mm -hmm. But there's just this whole headspace of, well, once a woman gets a little to a certain age, you know, they don't have the same growth potential. And that is infuriating to me. Well, that's um, wild because it is. they've built up decades of experience in a lot yep. of cases and arguably the best person for the job because they've seen it all. Yep. But I do see what you mean. It is rare that you see yeah. female CEOs who haven't started the company themselves, because you do see I, you do see older female CEOs, but often it's because yeah. they started that business. Yeah. It's unusual in a corporate that they'll just appoint a fifty-eight-year-old yeah. woman. Whereas you're right for a man. That's look. I mean, look at politics. I mean, you know, you've got eighty-year-olds running for top spots in politics. Oh, you'd never seen. You would have never woman. seen that. I mean, they would be doubted within minutes. Um, so it is, it's a really, it's infuriating. I think the tides are shifting very, very slightly because there are more and more dynamic female CEOs who are saying, Hey, wait a minute, don't knock me out. Um, or they have founded their own company and they're making sure that that is not the case. The opposite is almost true when I see with scale up or startup founders. So sometimes it's, you know, oh, you're a bit too young if you're a woman. Oh, how can you possibly start a company? You know, you're in your very early 20s. How can you do that? Mm. They want a little more age or experience. What was your previous job? What's your background? Meanwhile, you know, 19-year-old a male startup CEO, perfectly acceptable. Oh, yeah, they're or fabulous. Or just not even questioned. Yeah. So it is a bit interesting to see the dichotomy of the differences. You know, you sort of sit there and go, we have a much smaller window of whether you want to call it respect or just opportunity when we're a female leader. And that's not, I, again, that's a big generalization and it's not going to be true everywhere, but it's definitely what I see in the work I do. I think it's definitely a general a general rule that you do see it. I also have the privilege of working some with some absolutely bloody brilliant leaders, uh, women and men who are supporting women who kind of go, well, no, this is absolute, this is rubbish and I'm not dealing with that. And so they're, they are changing the game. It's going to take a lot more than the few. So, so I'm hoping that, you know, by the time I've got a 17 year old daughter, by the time, if she ever wanted to start a company, that there wouldn't be the same biases and barriers, but it's a slow go. I think it's interesting and a bit shocking that it's, it sounds like the sweet spot of the right age for a woman to be a CEO coincidentally, statistically, is usually the years that she wants to start a family. Yeah, absolutely. So juggling starting a family with being a founder or a CEO of a, of a high-performing company and having to juggle those roles at once. It's a very different prospect than a male CEO. And it doesn't mean that men can't be dads and be active dads or whatever, but mm. there's a different, not only mental, but physical burden oh, of having yeah. a family. Even if you don't give birth, you just being a mom is a different mental burden than what a dad typically is. Mm. And um, again, generalization, but that's what the norm is. So um, when you think about the priorities that a high-performing female leader may have, let's say mid-30s with a family and a company, to possibly even having 
other care op- care responsibilities like parents or whichever else. Mm. When you stack all of those priorities on, that's a lot. And uh, and that's one of the reasons I love doing what I'm doing because I hopefully can help support in that and make sure that those priorities and the choices they make uh, feel comfortable and solid for them as mm. leaders, as opposed to society telling them what has to be done mm. so they can make the choice. And do you find that, because a, a, a lot of female leaders often get the label of she's quite tough or she is quite aggressive or, and there are these terms that you don't see used on a male CEO. It wouldn't even, it wouldn't even come to mind. but, But for women, you know, it's so easy to label them emotional or emotional or, you know, Bitchy, if we're allowed to say Bitchy. that. Bitchy, yeah. You know, there's yeah, so yeah. many different terms that a woman will get labeled um, that a man, literally a synonym of the same term, a man would be praised for. Um, Not I'm, even praised, it's just expected that yeah. if you're a high-performing male CEO, you have a certain mentality, a certain personality, a certain mm-hmm. way of dealing with things. Whereas if you put those same behaviors in a woman, I think that a lot of people would have an issue with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, I don't only work with women. I work with a lot of uh, male CEOs or male leaders as well. And um, it is very interesting when they are setting their goals and they're saying, I want to be more confident. I want to be, these are men, uh, male leaders saying this. Oh, I want to be more confident. I want to be this or whatever. If the same thing was being said by the female leader, it would be taken in a different tone. Mm. Um, And it's seen for a man, it's like an improvement in a one way. And if a woman said that, it's an improvement because they're at a deficit, you know, Mm. like, oh, they're really weak and I want to be more confident. Um, It's a challenge. Um, And a lot of things get mislabeled. So when a woman says, I just want to develop some confidence, people are like, ooh, you have imposter syndrome. No, they may not have imposter syndrome. They may. A lot of people do, men and women. Mm. But they get labeled that there's a problem. No. Everybody can develop their confidence. That's not a gender thing. So, but we we sort of push the development of mm. female leaders in a different way than we do on men. Have you ever encountered a situation where a female CEO or a female leader finds it quite difficult man- managing their male workforce? Absolutely. Um, I would say that is probably in the top 10 list of things that I work through with my clients. Um, It could be personality, it could be confidence, it could be miscommunication. What I do see though, is that the women are willing to put the work in. Mm. Um, So they sort of go, right, I'm identifying that there's a challenge here and what what's my part in this and mm. what can I do? And then they actually do typically are much more bold about putting the accountability back on the men to say, What's your part in this? And how are you going to change? And I love that. I think that's great. Versus some of the male leaders I work with, when they see a personality conflict, not always, but sometimes it's trickier for them to see their own part in it. And then they will sort of say, oh, well, you know, we're working on it. You know, it is something that I work with them every day on. But it's the women are much more receptive to, let's get a solution here. Let's do this, but with joint ownership. So it's not her problem only, but it's, and it's not the men that she, um, that report to her as problem. It's a joint problem. That's very interesting, but I can, I can see how that's the case. Now, my challenge is sometimes these female leaders take too much ownership. So they're like, what do I have to change? Do I have to be more something? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we push them back saying you can own your piece, Mm -hmm. but don't own more than your piece. Are there any specific traits or let's call it superpowers, that you particularly see in women and just women? A lot more patience, which is really ironic because I don't think I'm very patient myself. Um, I mean, I can be patient in some situations, but, you know, everybody has their own, you know, different diverse thinking and whichever. Um, But overall, patience. Uh, I would also say, I mean, it may sound cliche, but the vulnerability and the empathy is definitely going to be stronger. If that can be used properly, it is an absolute superpower. Mm. Um, When I also say patience, I also mean that they can, there's definitely some ability for self-awareness in reading the room. So when I work with some amazing um, female leaders who when they sit in their team meetings as a CEO, they don't have to say a word. They're watching 
and listening more than maybe a male counterpart would. The male counterpart typically will be leading, but leading means talking versus the female leaders are leading by listening. So I see that a lot more, especially in scaling companies Mm. where there's a lot of, you know, it's a smaller team, but there's a lot of voices. And in big corporate settings and boardrooms, I see it as well. You see these fantastic female board members and C-suite who they don't have to be having their voice out there to be noisy. They're listening more. Now they have to make sure they balance that to make sure their voice is heard when it is needed. But there's just a bit more quiet and patience and listening. And that maybe that feeling of not quite needing to assert their opinion. Absolutely. In on everything and yeah. every detail and have that perception of having full control yeah. over things because in reality they know they have control. They don't need to reiterate that every two minutes to their team. Absolutely. It is a balance though, because I will see some um, high-performing women who sometimes do struggle with when should I speak up? And maybe there's that, again, a bit of a confidence issue. So they sort of feel if I don't have my voice heard, then I'm going to be ignored. That does happen, but the ones who get it, they really figure out when they can be noisy and when they need to be quiet Mm -hmm. and still have a really solid power to it. And- Something I'm really interested to know is obviously the corporate world has changed a lot, even in just the last 10 years. There's been a massive makeover (laughs) for how women are treated and accepted in the corporate world. Um, Do you see massive changes between now and say 10 years ago? And I guess, are there still horror stories? (laughs) Uh, absolutely. There's been a lot of changes. Um, there are still a lot of horror stories, but they're fewer and they're more predictable. So when you meet certain leaders, you're like, mm, yeah, those stories make sense, you know? Mm. So you can kind of predict it a bit more. Their personalities are a little bit more true to color, so to speak. I would say the changes I'm seeing is, first of all, more fit women. So automatically you see some changes, but the women who are going in power are not trying to be men. Mm. So they're not joining in a board or as a CEO or as a startup with the intention of, I have to act like a male CEO or a male leader. Um, And I think 10, 15 years ago, the education, the coaching, the influence that a lot of these women were getting, especially if they came up through big corporate, was, you know, keep your emotions in check, act, you know, act a certain way, whichever, which in theory is quite misogynist. And, you know, so these women were trying to almost act like men in order to have their power seat. And now they're sort of going, wait, I can be an actually true human and myself. And if I cry at a table, that's okay. You know, um, are they going to do that? Probably not with any comfort, Mm. but there's a little bit more openness. The flip side of that is, and, and this is why I love some of the male leaders I work with, is that they are changing the openness to their own vulnerability and self-awareness mm. and to be a real person and realize that they don't have it all together either. So that facade or mask that a lot of the male leaders had 10, 15, or even 20 years ago, you know, the the old white guy boardroom, that's not there. I have the privilege of working with some um, senior men who, male leaders rather, who are so empathetic and they want to do the right thing and they're doing the work on themselves to do the right thing. Mm. So they're turning into not just feminists, but they're turning into empathetic, you know, really true, honest human leaders. Is it there yet? No, but I, I'm very lucky that I get to work with some. I think it's a shame because there are so many amazing male leaders who want to do things the right way. And that was overshadowed for a long time when, you know, the rest of them were ruining it for all of them. (laughs) And I think that's quite sad because I've worked for lots of incredible male CEOs who are empathetic and who want to do the right thing, want to give everybody a voice and, you know, definitely don't discriminate against male, female, race, religion, and they're brilliant. And I feel like when I started working probably... 14 years ago, that shows my age, but 14 (laughs) years ago, there were also just such a huge amount of asshole CEOs that they were just ruining it for everyone. And it's so, it's so toxic. I guess I can draw a lot on my experience because I started off in a very corporate job in recruitment 
we were working with investment banks. So deals were being closed in strip clubs. <laughs> People yeah. were doing lines of coke. And it was so normal. And was I comfortable in that situation? Absolutely not. But I was encouraged to do what I had to do yeah. to close the deal. And so in time, I started to love it. Not being in a strip club, or, <laughs> and I certainly wasn't doing coke. But I, I think I thought I've, I've joined them. I'm part of There's the boys' club. There's an adrenaline. You, yep. you know, versus when I started, people were like, "Oh, you're going to make us a cup of tea, love," and um, you know, I yep. give you two weeks. That's how long women usually last here. Um, versus, you know, fast forward twelve months, I've earned my stripes. And I'm accepted. I'm one of the lads. And it's such a shame that you have to be considered one of the lads to be successful. And it's that, I think it's now about shaking that old image of male CEOs, you know, the sweaty lipped Coke on their, (laughs) dropping down onto their upper lip and um, trying to sleep with you. And I'm yeah. literally explaining that because that happened to me. Yeah. I had a, C- a male CEO, very successful, and he was married, had kids, and he approached me at, it was like a celebration quarterly lunch, and he approached me and he started flirting and he said, I've got a suite at the Mayfair Hotel. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> why are you telling me this? <laughs> I thought you lived down the road. So why do you need a suite at the Mayfair? Obviously he came to realize after why he couldn't go home to his own bed. Um, and he said, do you want to come back with me tonight? And I yeah. said, Ugh. literally there is no part of me that wants to come back yeah, with like- you tonight. And he said to me, but don't you want to stay in a suite in the Mayfair? And I was like, I'd love to stay in a suite in the Mayfair, but not, not, you. not when it involves me. <laughs> Not when it involves sleeping next to you tonight. And I just remember he was relentless. He had his arm around my waist. um, And he was like, definitely making comments about how, you know, I run this company. It's a 200 person company. And he was kind of trying to really, I like to say he was putting his balls on the table. And um, it wasn't impressing me at all. But the saddest thing is, is that 14 years ago, I didn't feel comfortable to escalate that to HR because yeah. I thought, well, he's the be. CEO. He's the founder of this company. Yep. Where do we think this is going to end? Yep. If I report the founder of this company, it's not going to end well or yep. in my favor. Let's be honest, because yep. they'll scrutinize been, You would have been quietly exited. Quietly exited. Yeah. They'll scrutinize my performance because everyone has a down week or two yep. and it's never going to end well for me. Yep. And I remember bringing it to my female line manager and I said to her, look, this is what happened. I don't want to escalate it because I don't think this is going to end well. And you know what her response was? To be fair, you do look like his wife did 10 years ago. Oh God. (laughs) Poor wife. I mean, that's like- Poor wife. Poor wife. But I thought, this is now getting to a point where the women in the business have been indoctrinated to accept it. it. That's it. So I started- much older. I started my HR career, um, you know, quite a long time ago. I was very, very lucky that my first proper CEO was a brilliant person who was super open and super self-aware and really wouldn't have ever tolerated any of that stuff. But that, you know, that was my first experience. So I was very empowered and emboldened by that to become an HR person and to become a leader in that respect. I went to a different sector and I worked in a different sector where, again, I had some fabulous female colleagues who we all support each other and lifted each other up. But I did switch into a leadership role where the CEO was amazing, but he said, um, the first two weeks in the environment, I'm actually going to give you a bit of a bodyguard because we are now working, I can control my team and you, you know, I know you can handle it. He was very, you know, acknowledging my own power, but he said, we are in a shared space in a very interesting environment that had multiple different cultures and different ways of treating women. He said, you're the very first female executive, like senior leader in this environment. And we've never had anybody, a female leader in a hundred years in this environment. And I'm not sure how much harassment you're going to get from the other companies who, because it's this really curious shared space. And I said, I need a bodyguard. And he said, well, it's not really a bodyguard. I'm just going to have one of the warehouse guys walk around with you. Oh, really? Like that bad? Because he's like, I don't want you to be catcalled. I don't want you to. So he was brilliant. 
And I had to have a bit of a wake up and go, whoa, wait a minute, how is this even a thing? Because again, I had been absolutely privileged to have wonderful male leaders who supported me and gender was never an issue and whichever, they were looking at performance and output. But that was an interesting awareness. Mm -hmm. And then when I started coaching about 12 years ago, the stories I would hear and the more and more and more, and I, you know, just the blatant, you know, it wouldn't even have to be, I mean, if you were starting out your career, it was almost expected that you would get some sort of harassment. Not that doesn't make it right, but there would be some expectation back then. Think about a female leader back then. They were getting the harassment plus being expected to perform, plus actually having to listen and then deny the female employees' stories. So they were the ones who would hear something that they would find familiar because maybe they went through it. I had one female, um, she was a CTO, absolutely bloody brilliant. I mean, I mean, educated, experienced, you name it, she had it all. And she was told by HR to not become the sounding board or the ear, the, the shoulder to cry on for the female employees. She's like, they need to look up to you, but we don't want them to feel empowered by you. So an HR person told this lady this. She t- turned it all around. She was like, uh, no. And so she ended up getting rid of that HR person. And she basically said, we will not tolerate anything here or there. And she changed it all up. It was absolutely brilliant. I loved her. Um, And, you know, she went on to do even better things and be a board member who basically stopped a lot of that behavior. But you're right. 10, 15 years ago, it was so much more normal for that sort of stuff to happen. Um, And it was accepted that that was the boys thing to do or the boys club or whatever. There's still cities that have old boys clubs um, in terms of corporate power. Oh, 100%. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. No. I've had the opportunity to work all over the world in major cities. And, you know, I remember I went to one event. Um, and I mean, I'm from Canada and everybody says, oh, that's the nice place. I went to one event and I got to the door and they didn't want me to come in because it was literally a gentleman, not a strip club, but like a gentleman's um, sort of um, corporate club. And I had to be on a list and I was on the list, but they had to go back and check the list because I was a woman. And it just wasn't normal for a woman to be in there. Now, again, this was 15 years ago. It's much different now. But the change is happening. I want it to be faster. I also want it to be real, though, because the challenge I have is if we pretend Mm. that everything is suddenly equal and balanced and Mm. that nobody's going to be harassed, then we'll actually ignore it when it happens. It's interesting because it sounds a lot like a lot of the female victims of this kind of alpha male <laughs> dominance and and or harassment then become complicit? I don't think so anymore. I think there's some amazing, powerful voices out there in every area. I think back then, absolutely. Mm. There was a complicitness. There was also fear. Um, I always take um, a look at some of the male leaders I work with now and I sort of say, what are you scared? What are you afraid of? What are you scared of? And if it's a power dynamic that they're scared of, that may, you know, that may be why 15 years ago men would be having those type of behavior because they had an entitlement and they were actually scared, you know, of losing their power. When I can drill down with my clients what they're scared of, typically everybody wants to see the right thing. Mm. And again, maybe they weren't being coached back then. I don't know. But now I see that. The, it's not as complicit. It's not as, there's definitely a much more positive movement. Now, is it, there's still going to be awful things? Yeah, we hear about it in the media every day. But I think the tide is turning. Uh, and I see that both in the female leaders I work with and in the male leaders I work with. But do you think there's an element of fear-mongering there? So a lot of the, a lot of the men that would get away with this stuff before now know they wouldn't get away with it and they're kind of fearful yes. of, of their actions. That doesn't mean... They're not fearful for... They're fearful for the consequences. They're not necessarily fearful in term, They're not going to learn to stop doing, but they're fearful of actually having consequence. And, and again, it's about losing power because if they get caught, the consequence is losing power or losing reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you hear it in the media, you know, when people are going to Epstein's Island, whatever... I don't think there's remorse about any of that. It's the fear of losing reputation and power. And I think yeah. that's where some of the CEOs, and I'm going to say male and women, female leaders are can be, you know, pretty awful to their oh, teams as well. Oh, I know. I've well. worked for some of them, yeah. And uh, <laughs> in fact, I see a lot that definitely, you know, punch down, not lift up. And yeah, so I think 
when I talk to a lot of the leaders though, that's one of the first questions is what are you scared of? And if it's about reputation and power, then that's where we start. I think that's it. I think that's definitely important though, because it is. And it's, it's so important not to put women on this pedestal, like, well, you know, girl power, they're going to be great. There are loads of horrific, <laughs> horrific female CEOs, leaders, bosses who treat people appallingly. I was in bullied ways. by a team of women in HR. And I was I can their believe leader. that though. And I was their leader. And I was absolutely drug mm. through yeah. um, to the point where I, you know, left the company because of a team of women who were absolute terrifyingly awful bullies. Yeah. And the president of the company was like, can't really do much about it because they, you know, it was an organization that had, um, you know, uh, labor rules and, you know, pen, uh, sort of similar to like a union. Mm. And they're like, we can't really get rid of them. I'm like, great. <laughs> Fantastic. These are HR people. Um, oh, yeah. it's horrible. I mean, there's, you know, women can be more toxic because it's psychologically a little bit more terrifying um, than than a lot of men. I'm very lucky. I um, have learned my lessons and I surround myself with fantastic women who their sole purpose is to lift each other. We all lift each other up. Um, champions, real champions, not just sort of, you know, fake fake, you know, um, cheerfulness, but really good, constructive friends. Um, and, but it, that's one of the things I do for a young leader, find that group, find that tribe. Um, don't expect everything from them because that can change, but make sure that you have that solid support system. Mm. And to be fair, I say the same to the young male leaders too, because it is a lonely world, uh, when you're leading a company, whether it's a startup or a solo person or whatever, it's very lonely. You need to surround yourself with some people who are going to be, you know, those critical friends. Mm, that makes sense. And I think the perception is when you talk about bad leaders, male, female, whatever, the perception is they're very bad leaders because they don't behave well or they're too aggressive or, you know, there's this certain image that you conjure up in your mind of this terrible person. But the truth is, is you can have a really bad leader from them not being assertive enough yeah. and being too soft or weak. Yep. How do you coach someone who is perceived as being too much of a soft touch and they're not able to, um, they're not really able to gain the respect that they need from their workforce? So sometimes it's about mis, misalignment of their role and what they who they are. So I see this all the time with scaling leaders. A startup founder could be absolutely bloody brilliant. I mean, they are a genius. They found what they need to do and they are solving a world problem, all that stuff. That doesn't mean they should be the scale-up leader. Maybe they should be a CTO versus a CEO. So sometimes it's a diagnosis of where are they and are they in the right role? Um, it sometimes is finding out what is their fear. Again, going back to the question, you know, if they are really being soft, why are they being soft? Is it because they're afraid of, you know, offending somebody? If they're really, really just a very, very sweet, kind person, you know, doesn't mean they can't be a leader, but let's figure that out. Uh, other times it's motivation. Let's figure out what is their main motivation. Is their motivation to get a company to a certain place or to sell or to whatever? That can change their personality depending on how they're going to interact. Um, sometimes they just don't know how to communicate. So um, so they come across soft and, you know, maybe passive or whichever, but it's because they actually have great ideas. They just don't know how to communicate them. So really you have to figure out a lot. You have to dig deep in a lot of these people. I believe that not everybody can be a leader personally as well. Um, and we actually don't want all leaders because we need to have some people who are very, very happy and motivated to not be the one in charge. Um you know, we, you can't have a, an army full of all, you know, captains or whichever, uh, you need to have people similar to a kitchen. You have to have a chef, but you also have to have people actually doing, you know, some of the other cooking and, and work. Um, every single organization, um, needs to have a mix. Now there's personal leadership though. Every single person has personal leadership and that's going to show up in different ways. If somebody has only personal leadership and not necessarily can develop that into, you know, kind of people leadership, then we have to work on that. So if they're coming across soft or passive or, you know, intimidated or whichever, what, you know, we need to figure out why. 
And how would you deal with a leader who has has the skill set and has the personality to be potentially a great leader, but they're really, really struggling to strike a balance between being a respected good leader <laughs> and being a really good person that does the right thing. Because sometimes what's perceived as the right thing to do morally isn't the smartest business decision. How do you deal with people like that? Um, that's a very common challenge I've got. Again, this is one of the ways I coach is coaching whole human because their own personal values do need to be honored and respected when they're, you know, and it may not be a match with the, per, the corporate values or the corporate objectives. So again, mismatch. Let's figure out, is there a mismatch? Should they even be in that role? Because there are going to be companies who are a very narrow focus in terms of what their deliverables may be. And if that leader isn't a fit for that because it goes against their own person, then you have to deal with that. Um, and it may be that the coaching I do is to help exit them. And that's not negative. It may be that this is just wrong fit. Mm. Um, in addition to that, we also figure out what in the company can they do to not give up their own personal values. Um, so a lot of companies maybe set a direction and it could have been an older direction from an older leader. A new leader who's hired with trust and openness is allowed to change things. Mm. And so maybe just take some time to figure out how they're going to change that to suit you know, the company and meet their objectives, but still suit them own, their own personal. I'm a big fan though of, I don't want any one leader ever to turn off their own person to be the leader. So if there's a conflict between what the company's doing, the right thing, you know, what the company sees as the right thing versus what a leader sees as the right thing, we've got to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, I would always err on the side of what the leader thinks is the right thing, as long as it's, you know, not detrimental. Detrimental. Yeah. Why can't we get some of that in there? Mm. Um, again, companies are built by, you know, a lot of different people. And usually the values are somewhat sanitized. I do a lot of work with teams as a sort of accelerator and optimizer. How do we figure out your true values as a team? But they have to feel authentic and they have to feel true to a human, mm. not just something that you can pop up onto a poster in a boardroom and sort of go, right, here's your values. Mm. If it lives on your website and on, on a boardroom wall only, there's no point in having them. Mm. And a leader has to be the one that drives that, that they feel human. That makes sense. And then on the absolute flip side, <laughs> how do you deal with a genuinely narcissistic leader? Um, I've definitely met them. Most of them won't ever hire a coach because they don't see anything that they're doing is wrong. Um, if they hire a coach, it's typically so they've been told to hire a coach. So um, there are people who are not coachable. There are people who I will have a session or maybe two or three, and we go, you're, you're not willing to change and you're not willing to listen. You're not willing to answer the questions I'm asking you. So it might not work. Um, I mean, obviously, narcissism as a, psych a psychological diagnosis is going to be, you know, one thing. But somebody's got those tendencies. Again, I don't think they should be hiding those tendencies. I would rather have a true on, you know, a true asshole who knows he's an asshole and figure out how to work with how they can be a leader. Are they gonna be a kind and empathetic? No, but they could still be an effective leader in the sense of results. Should they be having the employee meetings? Maybe not, but there may be another way that that person could be effective in the company. I just want them to admit they're an asshole. <laughs> and let's figure out what bits of that assholeness can be either tweaked or whatever. So, and I've, I've met these people, you know, I've, I've worked with some people who they will, their first saying will be like, I know I'm, I know I'm a dickhead. I'm like, okay, cool. That's wow. awesome. Uh, have you told your team this? And they're like, yeah, my team knows. I'm like, and how do they feel? They're like, they're cool with it because they know what they're getting. Yeah. You know, I've worked with people who, you know, they are really tough personalities, but because I know that and they're not trying to hide it. I can figure a way around it and they can figure a way around it for, to work with me. It's definitely, so it's an honesty and a self-awareness. And so again, that's the difference. N narcissistic tendencies may still have the self-awareness to say, you know, I kind of have these behaviors. I, I suspect I'm not a psychologist, but I suspect a true narcissist wouldn't have that awareness. So they're just probably not as much hope, but you know, there are some really tough people out there for, whatever reason in their upbringing, in their career that has made them into that tough person, men and women. But if they can admit it, we've got hope. We can work on it. It's, it's 
very interesting how you say that you coach the whole human um, and it's sort of the personal them and then the work them because there are so many people, like you said, men, women, who you would meet in a social setting and you would think, oh, they're amazing. They are hilarious. And you'd love to spend the evening with them. Or even their partner would say, yeah. you know, their romantic partner would say, they're they're the best. They're kind, they're generous. But then when you put them in a work setting, yep. totally a different story. Yep. And do you believe that <laughs> one person can have two different personalities, one at home, one at work, or is something being oh, fake? Oh, it happens all the time, but something is fake. Okay, you can't just It could be a common, common between the two. Mm. Uh, a lot, and this is why I do a lot of this, like, again, I'm not a life coach, but I ask a lot of questions about how do you behave? Um, I've done coaching sessions where after a certain amount of time, I've, you know, again, I'm not a therapist, so I'm, I'm very, very careful about the line. Um, but I've had coaching sessions where I'll send questionnaires to the partner at home and say, oh, can really? you answer some things? Because we're trying to find, we're trying to dig or dig deeper into those fears and figure out what is stopping them from doing something. Why are they not optimizing their own skills and, and expertise and, you know, all of the things about them that make them amazing? You know, where's that mask? Is, is you know, it's usually at work. You know, they've been conditioned or trained men and women to behave a certain way. Um, I, you've probably heard things like this before, but I've had a lot of female leaders who told me that they were cautioned to ever show an emotion. So do not ever cry. You know, you, I was, yeah. you could have the worst day in the world, but if you cry, you're done. And so, you know, you go through enough years of that, you you will put on a mask. You will train yourself to behave a certain way. And it could come across to people as a complete bitch, you know, a cold hearted, whatever. That's not who they probably are but that's what they've been conditioned and trained. And frankly, through trauma and through, you know, negative experiences. So if we can figure out what that change is, you know, what needs to be, it's not even a change, it's a reveal. What, what can we do to figure out who your true self is or a balance of it? There we go. There's also some people who are deeply private and so their personal life will be very personal and their professional life is very different. Mm -hmm. And that's fine too. It's about awareness and admitting that there's a difference there mm. as opposed to trying to, you know, keep up two facades. Mm. What's the upside though? What makes a narcissist a good leader? Um, goal orientation, direction typically, um, and tenacity to get things done. You know, uh, now um, some of the people I've met with who would have those tendencies, they're also typically quite problem solvers. You know, like they will find the solution because they are de absolutely determined to get to that goal. Um, sometimes that can actually be really beneficial. It depends on how they handle the solutions. Mm. You know, are they problem solving at the risk or the damage of other people? Or are they, you know, so I've had people who are, you know, may have those tendencies to be a tough, tough leader. Um, but they realize that they're surrounding themselves with brilliant people and they're going to listen to them because that will actually get them to the goal faster. Mm. Or with better results, especially if, you know, part of their, you know, personality is to win and maybe win with validation, which is usually money or results. So if we can get them there, you know, and admit that, then they are actually a little bit easier on sometimes on to work with on the team because the team knows exactly what they're getting. Mm. Well, you've probably seen it all, all <laughs> types of personalities, all types of leaders. Are there... Any key ingredients that you would throw together? I'm not going to say the perfect leader because that doesn't exist. No. But if you had to build a leader <laughs> from scratch, what are the key characteristics that you would choose to put in there? The first is probably curiosity. So, and I know that sometimes comes across as really cliche, but a very, very good leader is always open to figuring something out differently and, and you know, doesn't fall back in the trap of, well, this is how I do it. So I would say that idea of looking around and keeping your head up and being curious, um, listening, and again, can come across really cliche, but actually listening with the intent to learn as opposed to listening because you, you know, you're a leader and you're supposed to listen. Mm. Um, so, and then fun. I mean, you have to really enjoy what you're doing. When you're in a high pressured role, whether that is a massive multinational or a startup, you have to enjoy what you're doing. The moment that you don't see that joy and that fun and maybe passion or interest in what you're doing, you shouldn't be there. And I, I would say that for any employee, but especially a leader, because the moment that that joy and fun gets out of it, 
everybody else around you will feel it. Mm. So if you don't have that purpose and fun, you know, so I think that those, and those are things that are going to be fleeting and change. So you could be in a leadership role and it's great for the first few years and then you lose that passion. That's fine. That's the time to move on though. So I would say those are the big ones. Um, the honesty piece, which again, could be a bit cliche. It's honesty with oneself though, not just honesty with those around you. Because again, a really good leader can take a stock of themselves and go, where am I today? And how am I doing? And how am I going to present myself to mm -hmm. the world? How am I going to present myself as, you know, a whole person? Mm -hmm. So those would be my key ones. And I see them in, in you know, in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously a lot of other ones out there, you know, that whole drive and ambition and things like that are there too. But I think a really good leader doesn't have to be even the CEO. A really good leader is can be middle management or whichever and be really, really great at what they do. Mm. Um, and ideally, they're going to then be able to move up. But it doesn't have to be only looking to the very top for leadership. And how have you seen female leaders evolve over the last few years? Like what are the, because obviously there have been some huge changes, but what are the positive things that you've seen in, in the involvement of female leadership? I think airtime. So female leaders are actually getting, I mean, there's more of them, but they're also getting the airtime as they deserve. So whether that's writing a book, I mean, you have the Sheryl Sandbergs and you have all these other people who, you know, write books. Um, it's also a different definition of leadership. So you will have somebody who comes across as a leader, but they're not necessarily coming across as like the buttoned up corporate. So they actually are still a leader, mm. but they're a little bit, you know, the, the description's a bit different. Mm. Um, so I think the evolution, what I see is that there is just a lot more diversity of female leaders. Therefore, we can see ourselves in somebody as a leader in a different way. Um, diversity in a lot of different ways, because, you know, in the past you might've just seen, you know, kind of the, this stereotypical, you know, white middle-aged woman in a bank in, in America as a leader uh, who didn't get airtime, but was in a photo. So you could be like, okay. But now I think younger women can see so many different examples of leadership in women um, and true leadership so that they're being lifted up and they're speaking their mind and they're having a stance on things, even if it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, they're also leaving organizations when things don't, you know, when things are turning, uh, turning around. Mm. So they're living to their own values. Um, they're having much more, or they're showing much more confidence. They might've had it, but they're showing it, but they're also showing that vulnerability. So to me, that's where that evolution is happening. I want to see that in every leader, male or female, or anybody um, in general, but I think it's definitely more visible in women now. Mm. Well, at least that's something positive. It is. It's really, <laughs> again, we are, we're getting there. We have a long way to go. It feels like we're getting there, but yes, I well, agree with you. There's yeah. a, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is such a long way to go. Such a long way. When you look at the amount of fundraising that's going to women, female leaders, it's still it's, it's, nothing. it's disgustingly low. Um, when you see the board makeup in large multinationals, it's still not right. I don't want it to be 50%, 50% only because they have to. Yeah. I want women to be there because they have earned and deserve to be there, not because somebody's trying to meet a quota. Absolutely. And so I want a lot more. I would love boards that have, you know, one board maybe is less women and one board is a lot more women because that's what's true and needed as leaders. So it's equality, but it's just honesty. Yeah, absolutely. I think it should be the right person for the job. Yep. And I think that's, I've, I've gone to a lot of these talks and heard panels of women speak. And I, I, one woman said they should just automatically have a quota and fill that with women. And I said, well, does that mean that I'm not a feminist then? Because I don't agree with that. I think that the best person should get the job because then is it fair on the male who went and studied for eight years? I, the truth is, is that I want equality between the sexes and may the best person for the job secure that job. Yeah. And they said, in order to balance things, there has to be a quota of women in these roles. Yeah. I, I would agree more with you than that other person. To me, the uh, true feminism is that everybody gets the, the same opportunity. Mm. It doesn't matter your gender um, or any how you identify. So to me, it's, you know, it, you are the right skill, the right fit. 
there are going to be organizations that probably would be a good fit to be more male dominated because that's just the industry. There's also going to be industries that could be more female, but that shouldn't be a limit or a qualification. It's just that's the reality of mm. it. I'm okay with that. Um, to me, it's that when somebody is out there looking for their next CTO, CMO, C whatever, that the skill set, the experience, the personality for the organization at that time and stage of the organization, not necessarily even future state, but at that time, is gender neutral. Mm. That it is just that a human, it has nothing to do with anything else. I want, I want to know that I got the job or I got asked to do this talk at this event because I'm great, not because yeah. I am a female. Yeah. It's about being confident and expert and knowledgeable and the right fit. Mm. Has nothing. To, and my challenge, though, is that a lot of organizations will say, what is the right fit? And they may think that's a gender. Mm. And I don't, I don't agree with that. They yeah. also may think that's a politic or that that's a race or that's a whatever. I don't agree. I think the right fit is you know, is the right fit mm. for the organization. Mm -hmm. So I think we're, I, you know, again, the tides are turning very, very slowly, but I think people are starting to clue in that they need, um, you know, mm. what's necessary. I have the privilege of being a mentor in a few different incubators. And one of them is, um, is absolutely brilliant because it's an incubator that's focusing on female health and well-being um, tech startups. Mm. Very cool. But that doesn't mean the founders are female. Some of them are, naturally. They don't need to but they don't be have female. To be. No, some of them, no. you know, some of them are brilliant men who have, because maybe they're in the medical field or mm. whatever, have noticed a need for something. And I'm, you know, shout out to Femtech Labs for that because they have really figured it out that it's not about female founders. That is a huge piece of it. Mm. But they're looking for, you know, the other side of it too. There's also much needed many female founder groups, which I fully, fully support because they are going to change the game. Mm. But I want it to change for everything. Mm. Absolutely. It'll take some time. Yeah. We're getting there. Okay, at least it's heading in a positive direction. I think so. Again, bumps and bruises depends on when we have changes in the laws and mm. whatever else, and there's new barriers and hurdles added to the, to the uh, journey. But I think, you know, the positive trajectory is still there. Mm. And... My last question, can a great, I would say, let's go with CEO. Okay. Can a great CEO really do it all? Can they be a great CEO and be a great dad and a partner? Like where, where do you draw the line between life and work? If someone were to ask you, I, I, you know, or say I don't have a good balance between life yeah. and work, how would you advise them? So one of my first things is I, and it's a bit of a, a I don't know. I don't believe in work-life balance because work is part of life. I believe in life priorities. So everybody has to make their choices and their priorities. Can somebody be a great CEO with a lot of other things going on in their life? Um, CEO is only part of their life. And I say, yes, they can. But they have to, regardless of their gender, they have to be really, really clear about what is the priority at the moment in time. Hmm. So a startup example if a CEO is in the middle of a fundraising, they may have to put a few things on the back burner to be able to focus on that fundraising and mm. focus on that priority. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean they're a bad dad that, or mom. That doesn't mean they're a bad partner. That doesn't mean they're not great, you know, a family member. It just means that they're priorities. So if we look at their week, maybe there's a bit more of a time crunch for the fundraising. Mm. Um, there has to be some compassion. We have to have self-compassion. We should be doing it regardless of your CEO. We can't do it all 100%. That doesn't add up in terms of, you know, math. It just doesn't work. So anybody who's in a senior leadership role can do it all, but they have to make choices. Mm. And then they have to be okay and compassionate with themselves about those choices. Mm. Now, obviously, if somebody was noticing that they were spending more time at work for a longer period of time, hopefully they have a circle of friends, advisors, family, whatever, that can call them out if they haven't already realized it and say, hey, cool, you did your bit there. Mm. Now let's change our priorities. Mm. Um, you can have an absolutely full life with about, you know, eight pieces in a pie. You just need to know when you're going to give a little bit more to each piece and be okay with that. It may be that you're going to not go for the run because you want to snuggle with your kid or, you know, take your dog for a walk instead of going for a run. That's fine. That's a choice. 
That's the prioritization that we need to focus on as opposed to trying to do it all, all the time. Mm. Um, there's a lot of experts out there that say like, wake up at four in the morning and you're gonna have a full day, whatever. Absolutely not. That fits for some people and hey, that's really cool. But I don't think, you can only do that if you're actually balancing it with everything else. Um, you know, and a CEO who thinks if they wake up at four in the morning and they're gonna start their day in a certain way, they still need to go to bed then at a reasonable time. And I think that's the challenge is people are being told they have to do everything for everybody all the time. Women get much more of that burden than men, to be honest. But a good leader can sort of go, right, I'm making a choice here. I can even say the choice out loud. I can say my why, as long as they're being honest with themselves and not telling themselves some funny stories. Mm. Um, and I can role model that, those choices to everybody around me, both my family and my team. So yeah, you can do it all, but you're not going to do it all really, really well all the time. So you have to make those choices and prioritize. Very, very so. sound advice. And it, it seems like you love what you do. As I well. do. I do. I mean, every time I have um, a leader that I'm working with, whether that is in a one-on-one -on -one session or a team session or a team facilitation, when I see the people that I work with go, right, okay, I can do this or all right, you've just given me an insight. You know, again, I'm not giving the advice. I'm asking questions to get them to give themselves advice. Mm. And when I get, when they get those insights and they sort of go, right, you know, the smiles, the ahas, sometimes a little bit the, oh, you know, cringes. Um, that's why I do what I do. Mm. So when I can feel path and it's not moving forward, but when I can feel people that they've moved because mm. they may be moving back or up or down or sideways, mm. but when there's movement and change, I love it. It's great. I mean, I get an absolute thrill out of it. So I can tell. Well, if you want to be the next unicorn founder, then <laughs> you should definitely use Emily. Thank you for being here. Thank Some you. Incredible, incredible advice. I uh, love it. Great conversation. Thank you.